Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Metro editor Greg Jefferson. Deputy editorial board editor Nancy Prayer Johnson. Our guest today was recently elected to his fourth term on the north side, uh, City Council District 9. Uh, prior to serving on city council, he uh, served in the U.S. Air Force. He was a, a trustee with the Alamo Community College's uh, district board. And he worked for 27 years, I think it's 27 years, as a, as a teacher. Uh, John Courage, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Gilbert. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the things that has really struck me about your uh, uh, your election victories, and I know that you've had to answer this question a lot because you had a history as a Democrat and, and District 9 is generally perceived as the most conservative district in the city. And when you got elected in 2017, it surprised a lot of people. And you've, then they thought, well, he, this will happen. He won't, he won't get reelected. And then, of course, you, you got reelected three more times. But one of the things that has struck me is, is how effective your mail voting campaign has been. Uh, two years ago, almost the entire margin of your victory over Patrick Von Dolan came from mail voting. I think you had about a three to one margin over him in that. And, and uh, this time, your nearest competitor, I think you beat by nearly nine to one in mail voting. Is there anything in particular about how you and your campaign have approached that because you've been so effective at that? Well, I think we recognize there's a lot of people that consistently vote by mail. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of consistent voters when it comes to city council. I mean, we have sometimes 12, 15 percent of the voters. But in our district, we've we've always had higher numbers in District 9. And so we wanted to target the get out the vote effort to those people who vote by mail uh, and as well as the early voters. And and I think it paid off. Uh, it's a matter of public record. You know who votes by mail consistently and just reminding them to get out to vote and including a little information about us, uh, you know, as uh, inviting them to send in and get that mail ballot, fill it out and turn it in uh, has always, I think, worked well in our district because there's there's a lot of those mail in voters. A few weeks ago, we had Assistant City Manager Jeff Coyle on the podcast, and he was talking about some of the bills that were in the legislature. And, and I think the one that he was the most concerned about was HB 2127, which uh, would really restrict uh, cities from uh, creating new uh, ordinances or, or uh, rules that are not sort of explicitly allowed by the state code. Um, there are many cities, uh, leaders in, in many cities who are really nervous about this and it's, it's made its way to the, to the governor's desk. This is going to be a law. What are you, how do you evaluate this and, and, uh, what kind of effect do you think this is going to have on Saturday? You know, I think it's a horrible law. Uh, I think it's going to have an adverse effect on every major city and all of, a lot of the middle-sized cities in the, in the state, uh, you know, I've often heard from our Texas leaders that they get upset when things go in Washington different than they would like to see in Texas. And they complain about Washington trying to tell Texas what to do, uh, you know, that all government local is better than government far away. And here they're doing exactly the same thing to all of the cities in Texas. To me, it makes no sense. It's going to create a lot of work and probably... It's going to dissuade cities from taking a lot of steps that their community may want simply because they're afraid they're going to end up in some kind of a legal battle or legal limbo over what the state has to say about what the city wants to do. 
Yeah, that was the thing I was wondering. You know, I, I could I could see a lot of litigation coming out of this, but I could also see just the chilling effect where cities are just going to say, "Well, we're not going to bother to impose this regulation because it, it's we're going to we could face that." Possibly. Well, the s- smaller cities certainly, or the middle-sized cities, they probably don't have the uh, the resources to be able to take on the state. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think the larger cities. I'm sure San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Houston will be more willing to put up the fight, uh, I hope, right away. I think this needs to be tested at the uh, state Supreme Court level and maybe the U.S. Supreme Court level. Uh, and I'm encouraging our uh, team of attorneys to work with other attorneys in other cities mm-hmm. to come up with a united effort to try and oppose the implementation of this if, if it can be done. Does San Antonio have a good test case? Are there any issues that you think are natural to test this? You know, I guess I haven't really looked to try and identify anything. I think what I would say is there's two two ways of looking at it. Are are they going to say that what they've passed can overcome what the cities have already done? In other words, uh, preempt things that have been grandfathered, you know, maybe months or years ago. Or are they going to say this is only what goes forward? Uh, that more or less you'll have to come to the state and get an okay before you do something with. And if, if the second is the case, then we'll have to do something and see if the state says, no, you can't and use that as a test case. But I don't know what that might be right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the big issue in this year's municipal election was uh, Proposition A, which would have expanded the city site and release program. It would have created the position of a justice director. Um, you not only opposed Proposition A, but you you joined your fellow North Side council members in leaving the dais when the vote was cast by the council to put it on the ballot. What were the things that that you objected to most strongly? Uh, in, in yeah. You know, a lot of people misunderstood my actions. They thought that maybe the three of us were acting uh, together and that we were opposed, so to speak, to to the whole process or, or the actual um, uh, recommendations themselves. My concern was that I didn't feel that the city attorney's office was going to be able to educate people about this well enough at the ballot box. And I felt in good conscience that I couldn't vote for something that was going to either uneducate or mislead the public about what they'd be voting for. You know, the document was like 13 pages long, and it was all very legal language. And to only say, well, we're going to have about a one-page description about what this has to say, which is what the city attorney said. And I told him and I told uh, other council members, I just can't put that on a ballot for the people in my district to vote on. That's unfair, and it it doesn't really tell them what they need to know. That's what frustrated me, which is why I I didn't uh, stay on the dais and vote for it. How much did campaign politics play into your decision to walk out. I mean, you you had, you know, you, at that point, you didn't know what kind of race really you were going to have for re-election. And you're from a very conservative district. You could reasonably have thought, well, this is never going to fly in prop, uh, you know, prop A is never going to fly in District 9. Well, you know, I think that's fair. That's a fair question. And, you know, I am aware of, of the politics, of the inclinations of the people in my district, mm-hmm. and I respect and honor them. When I think I have a different point of view, mm-hmm. I'll let that be known. And sometimes I've mm-hmm. made votes that people in my district didn't agree with. But I didn't think that this was the kind of issue that um, the people in my district were going to hold me accountable for as much as uh, not 
making sure they had an opportunity to know what they were voting for. That was my really biggest concern. Uh, you can say every decision we make at City Hall is political to one way or another. I'll, I'll be very honest about that. But the politics is, are you doing your best job in representing the people in your community and letting them know what you're doing and why you're doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, San is only allowed to uh, amend its charter uh, every two years. And... Um, so there, there was talk even before the actual, uh, before election day, that if Prop A uh, failed to pass, which which is what occurred, that there might be a a, a push to uh, ha- have another charter amendment uh, that would essentially reverse what happened in 2018, where you had tenure a tenure limit and and salary cap put on the city manager, and I know there's some concerns uh, within the city and certainly within the business community that. Um, Eric Walsh, you know, he's, I think he's, he has eight years, I think was, is, is the limit. I, I, That's correct. And I'm, he's, he's got, what is he at about five, five. six years? Yeah. About five now. And so the concerns over the, both the pay and the, and the, the tenure limit that this, you know, the city could end up losing uh, him. And uh, I, I guess I want to get your thoughts on whether you think uh, that kind of a charter amendment uh, proposition would be a good idea, and and what concerns do you have about about the, the city with regard to Eric Walsh? Sure, uh, I I brought my list of possible charter changes, and I feel like <laughs> there's about a half a dozen. I hope to uh, talk with council members about uh, the city manager, more so the mayor. Uh, I, I think we do need to make some adjustments to our city charter. I'm glad that uh, Prop A did not pass, which would have limited our ability to to maybe make some charter changes. But yeah, at, at the top of my list is expanding council to 12, 12 council districts because I think we've grown enough mm-hmm. that we should have better representation by smaller populations you represent so you can be out there closer to them. But the next thing on my list is amending the city manager's uh, uh, term mm-hmm. and uh, also amending the city manager's pay. Right. Uh, I... I don't know that I can suggest the best term limits or if we should even have term limits. I think, though, it's worth discussing and getting a consensus from the council. But I want to go back to my district and -hmm. talk with people in my district and find out what they think. Now, they may say, hey, I'm happy with eight. Well, you know, once you're elected as a council and you start working within the structure of what there is, you you learn a lot more about what makes things happen Mm -hmm. and uh, how things happen. And so, you know, I might I might have a different opinion about the length of term you might want to have a city manager than people in my district mm-hmm. want. But I, I want to have that discussion. Same thing about pay. You know, I, I think taking the lowest paid city staffer and saying, well, no more than 10 times what that person earns mm-hmm. is not as practical as it needs to be in order to retain or attract quality municipal leadership. And I, I like the idea that our leadership is homegrown right now, but I think that we always need to look for the best kind of leadership. When Cheryl Scully came in, mm-hmm. uh, she made significant changes. Uh, some people appreciated those. After a while, some people didn't appreciate those, but uh, I still think she did a lot in the way of continuing to professionalize our city staff. And uh, I think Eric's done the same thing. And I hope that continues. But if we're going to limit their service or their compensation, uh, we're also limiting the opportunities for having the best people available to do the work for the people in the city. 
So those are a few of those things. I want to amend uh, the compensation that council members get. You know, that was set mm. eight years, nine years ago now. Yeah. And uh, it's one thing to say, what's the city's average salary? And okay, let's pay the councilman that. And I think that sounds reasonable. But I think that needs to change over time as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd like to see us look at uh, changing city council salary, maybe making it about the average salary in the city of San Antonio, but change it every three years or, or five years. But right now it's been like eight years. And I think that would enable us to retain more people who want to serve, uh, but simply uh, have financial challenges to be able to serve. You got to take care of your family. Are you talking about indexing council salary to like the median income? So like if it goes up, that's, you know, the, the yeah. council pay goes up in 10. I think that's worth considering because wouldn't you say that whoever's running your city is worth the average salary in your city? And I think they came up with Anna Sandoval, right? With yeah, her. she talked about that as well. She yeah, talked she about and that. I talked Child about care. that. Child care. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty That's outspoken true. on that. Right. And also, um, I just said we ought to uh, amend the terms of city council members as well. I think four two-year terms is better than two two-year terms. But, you know, you spend so much time in elections, preparing for elections. Mm -hmm. There are so many more political concerns that you take in when you get close to an election mm -hmm. that I don't know that you make the the best decision you, you could make because you're concerned about what are the people in my district gonna think about this? And you have to do that every two years. I, I'd like to see us go with two four-year terms. Mm -hmm. And always keeping in mind that uh, we have a process built into our, our government uh, where you can recall a council member if they're doing a bad job yeah. or people in the community think they are. Yeah. So it's not like you're stuck with somebody who may be doing an inadequate job in the minds of the people they represent. Yeah, yeah. When, when uh, we were talking about council pay, uh, I was thinking about the fact that you know, when you ran in 2017, you were pretty much at a point where you, I think you were ready to retire from exactly, teaching. Exactly, You yeah. did retire from teaching around that time. Mm -hmm. If you had been at a different stage of your life, maybe it had been, this had been 10 years earlier or something like that, um, would it have worked for you just looking at the compensation the council members make to, as this is your, your sole source of income? Well, you probably remember I ran for council in 1989 mm -hmm. and again in Mm -hmm. 1991, mm -hmm. and back then it was what $25 a meeting, or something? <laughs> and that was about 24, it. Yeah. yeah, 24 bucks. Right. Uh, so that didn't preclude me from wanting to mm -hmm. run for council at that time. But I, I look back at uh, the role that council members have been playing over the years, and I look at the role I play today, and the expectations, and the growth in the community, and I cannot imagine how so many council people served in the past for so little compensation and and not with a lot of support either. Mm -hmm. uh, and and at, those were the years when really it was the city manager who ran the city and maybe the mayor. Mm -hmm. and, and But the council members didn't have the, the time, the energy, the support, the resources to really do as, as much work as I think we do today. But also I think we should be. We should be more of uh, a planner and, uh, and, and making sure that things work and, and hold city government accountable. That's as much part of our job as, as anything else. About how many hours do you work a week? It's a full-time job for me. Uh, I don't have any other job, but some weeks I'll, I'll work, you know, probably maybe 45, 50 hours in some weeks, 
I'll probably work 35, 40, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I, it's really always a full-time job for me. And, and it, it should be for anybody who runs for city council. Mm-hmm. I, I work a lot. I go to a lot of evening meetings. Uh, you know, I've got 90 neighborhood associations in my district, but not all of them meet yeah. and not all of them invite the council member out there. Uh, but I go to a lot of them. My staff goes to a lot of them. Sometimes uh, there are annual meetings and I want to be there because so many people show up. Sometimes just the board meeting and I make sure I have a staff member there to understand what their concerns are so we can address them. But it's a full-time job for me. It should be a full-time job for everybody from the mayor on down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to the city manager's uh, charter mm-hmm. amendment that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, so we went from having no term limits mm-hmm. on the city manager to mm-hmm. having a term limit of, of eight years. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what you're saying is you're talking, you're, you're thinking about maybe uh, lengthening that, adding more time to it, but not eliminating time limit or term limits. Do you like the idea of term limits for a city manager? Do you think that's you know, I don't know that I feel they're necessary to tell you the truth, okay. but um, I'm willing to ask other council members and get more community input on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the city manager works for the council. Mm-hmm. The council has the authority to change city managers if they believe it's, mm-hmm. it's necessary. Um, sometimes city managers have uh, a lot more influence than maybe the council members have. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard maybe for the council to stand up and say, mm-hmm. it's time to make a change. I think that was the situation with Cheryl Scully. Yeah. But, uh, I, but the working relationship I see with Eric and all of the uh, council members that I work with today is, is very positive. Uh, I think it's respectful, it's professional. Uh, and I, I see no reason why he shouldn't continue doing that. But if it gets to a point in time where it's unproductive, where it's negative, uh, I, for one, and I think most of the other council members are willing to say, you know, it's time for a change mm-hmm. rather than just setting a, a limit that to a certain extent uh, limits what that city manager may be able to do or get done. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've learned is that two two-year terms was not enough for a council person to get much of anything done for their district. All you could do is rubber stamp what the city staff was saying. We can do this in the next two years. Mm-hmm. And then if you've got some ideas, we'll try and include Any long term projects two. you wouldn't be right. Yeah, yeah. Just like right now, we just opened up the District 9 Senior Center. Mm-hmm. We're opening up a, a brand new park. Uh, we're going to be extending a street, uh, Sonterra Boulevard, connecting it to 1604. Mm-hmm. I would not have seen any of these things happen if I had only served two-year terms. Okay. And and I've been very involved in trying to make them the best projects they can be. Uh, and so I think that the idea of having longer terms for the council has been positive. But throwing elections in every two years, I think, uh, takes away from the abilities of the council people to really do even a better job than we we fit in there. Mm. But what about the political consultants? My God, you're going <laughs> to <they're gonna, laughs> you're, you're bankrupt them. We'd you're going to bankrupt them. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Talk about the politics involved. I don't I haven't met a single person who is involved in helping politicians get elected by going out and spreading the word or encouraging people to make contributions. I haven't met a single one of them who hasn't told me, uh, I wish I didn't have to do that. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to go out and help fundraise for this candidate. They'd be glad if they didn't have to do that. <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lot for anyone to do. Uh, 
when when it comes to political campaign season. Right. So it sounds like a part of what you're saying with with in the idea of two four year terms is you know it it, it puts a little more authority in in the council members as as against the city manager. Did you ever feel like uh, you were being led around by Eric Walsh, like he was kind of driving things in your district, or no? That's a fair question to ask, and I really don't think I have. I've I've felt a little disappointment that maybe he hasn't responded as quickly as I wanted him to mm-hmm. uh, on maybe one or two occasions. Nothing really comes to mind. Um, I I'm always a little leery of how long it takes staff at lower levels to be responsive. But when I've called Eric, or when I've called the director of a certain department and said, "Hey," Why can't this be done? Mm-hmm. Uh, I seem to get very favorable responses. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing I've learned is that I have absolutely no authority to tell anybody to do anything in city government. That's not my role. But my role is to ask questions and find out why or when or how. And what I found out when I asked those questions, things get done. Mm-hmm. Last week, the council was briefed on uh, the hotspot policing program, which SAPD initiated early this year uh, in partnership with UTSA. And they're using data to determine where the uh, spots uh, of high uh, uh, violent crime incidents are are, are happening in the city and trying to maintain some kind of police presence there. Mm -hmm. Um, What were your impressions? Uh, I mean, it it looked like the the statistics indicated that there has been some reduction in, in, the, in the crime numbers. Uh, what are your impressions of the program so far? Well, I think it's it's really too soon to have uh, a real understanding of how effective it is. My impression right now, and I have to say part of it is because I rode around with police officer mm-hmm. at night to try and see how, and it, I've done this before, to see how they felt about it. And they drove around to the hot spot. It was one that I, I really might not have presumed it to be a hot spot. But it was, and we we sat there, nothing was going on, uh, stayed there 15 minutes and drove on. Uh, but it was a hot spot in the north side. Now, a hot spot maybe in other parts of town might have turned, uh, shown me more than what I saw. Uh, I were think they, it's a, Were they going from one hot spot to another? They would spend 15 minutes at one and then go off to another one, is that? No, not when we were, they, they did their normal tour around the area. Uh, which was fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that it may have merit. I'd like to see a little bit more. What I want to see, and I told them this at our meeting the other day, I want to see numbers. I don't want to see percentages. For example, if there had been uh, 911 calls or even 311 calls, or if there had been crimes that were committed of a violent nature, uh, you know, I'd like to see what were the numbers before we started going to those hotspots and what are the numbers now to show, because a percentage to me, you can have a 50% uh, decrease in something, but that meant three things or four things happened and now only two are happening. And that may or may not be significant over a short period of time. So I wanna see it again uh, when we get to that six month period to really evaluate it. I hope it's, it's meaningful. One thing I heard the chief say that kind of threw me was that they had a different number or uh, different locations after the first two months. 
So they had 28 locations. Mm-hmm. Then they still have 28, but I think what they were saying was some of the locations, nothing went on, so we decided to add some that were more of a hot spot. Well, you know, I think that, you know, if you're going to change after two months and give up on a spot, you could see a return to some of the same activity that was there. I would have liked to have seen them stay in the same 28 spots for at least six months to really understand what kind of a dramatic impact. Because after six months, people are going to find someplace else to go to do whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. But after two months and, and then they're not back again, I just wonder if that's effective. And I hadn't really talked to the chief about it since that presentation, but you know, I wanted to get a little bit more understanding. But I think looking at it six months down the line will tell us more. Uh, and I hope it's worthwhile. Uh, because we need to do more about violent crime in this city. I've, I've put down that public safety, violent crime, gun violence, and even property theft have just gotten way out of hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all over the city, and it's in my district, too. And we just need to find more ways of curbing all of that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was thinking about when you were mentioning that is that in 2019, uh, in the wake of mass shootings, uh, Sutherland Springs, El Paso, Santa Fe High School, you proposed a voluntary gun buyback program. The police chief said, uh, I think at the time, that while it was the idea is well-intentioned, he had doubts that, that this kind of program works. Would you still like to see something like that happen in San Well, I wasn't going to bring it up today um, because it's something I'm working on. Okay. And, but I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, I would like to see us have a weapons exchange program. I'm targeting it toward the fall. I'd like to get it around the time of Thanksgiving or Christmas in that holiday season, where what we can do is ask people to turn in weapons they no longer want that are uh, of a danger they feel in their household uh, that maybe they've found uh, and exchange those for gift certificates so that people can go buy food for the holiday or go buy Christmas presents for their kids uh, in exchange for those weapons. And uh, I'm I'm trying to expand my own suggestion about that to bring in uh, some faith-based community assistance and some business community assistance. Uh, theoretically, what I see is trying to have maybe $100,000, $150,000 available and purchase, uh, not purchase, but exchange for gift certificates for many as many weapons as we can get. And you know what? I've always said this. You get one gun off the street, you may be saving a life or stopping a crime from happening. If you get 10 guns or 100 guns or several hundred guns, then I just multiply that out of my own mind. Now, some people say it doesn't work. Well, I've had my staff do some research. We've identified five other cities that have been doing it over the last couple of years, and they feel they've been very successful at it. So what we've heard over past years, mm-hmm. I don't think is relevant to today because there are there's so many dramatically more issues on gun violence. I think people are more supportive of the concept, want us to do whatever we can to get guns out of the hands of people so that they're not hurting themselves or hurting others or, or committing a crime. Uh, you know, I, I respect people's right to own guns. You know, the First Amendment is something that I don't challenge, and I wouldn't want to. But I think we all understand that there are too many guns on the streets, and if there's anything we can do to reduce those, we're doing our job uh, for public safety in our city. 
What what is your expectation on the uh, the response you're going to get from uh, the mayor and, and other leaders in the city on that? I think they'll be supportive as we as we work on this. I think the the chief understands where I was before and understands where I am. I'm in a better position to go ahead and move on that than I was, mm-hmm. you know, a few years ago. Uh, and I respect the chief. I respect the police department. And if we say we're going to have a weapons exchange, I know that he'll be there operating it to the safety of the community. Uh, you know, there may be uh, some talks about how and when and where and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, we need to get those guns off the streets. We need to destroy them. Uh, and we need to do it uh, as quickly as we can. But something like this takes, I think, some significant planning to make it work and to get buy-in from people in the community. Mm-hmm. Who do you envision would hand over their weapons in, in exchange? Like well, I'll give you some example. I, I think, I think uh, older people, mm-hmm. you know, who maybe had a gun for years and they don't want it around the house anymore. Mm-hmm. People who have family members who may be disturbed. Mm-hmm. may have mental issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other uh, vets who've, who may be suffering from PTSD. Um, you know, somebody who finds a gun in their home they didn't know their kid had. You know, there's, there are all kinds of possibilities. Uh, and, and whether, like I said, we, we get one or 100 or 500, I think every one we can get off the street helps. Now, I'm not looking to... Uh, try and encourage people to go out and, and make these guns online. What do they call those kinds of guns that you can make with a, a 3D printer? printer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not looking for people to bring broken guns and say, well, you know, give me $100 for this. I mean, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, I think we do need to do what we can to get as many uh, guns, whether it's long guns or, or, or pistols, you know, out of the community. Uh, and, and one thing is, uh, the police and I talked, uh, the chief and I talked about this t- before. It may give them an opportunity to trace guns that show up that might be related to, to criminal activity. Mm-hmm. But the biggest part of it is it will be anonymous. So we want to make sure it's anonymous so people are willing to give something up and not feel like they're going to be held liable if mm-hmm. there was something about that gun that maybe they didn't know or did know, but would keep them from turning so it in. There would be no amnesty uh, uh, attached to this. It would just no. be an anonymous program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, I wasn't planning on, on discussing it only because we're still trying to get uh, the details done to where we know it'll work. Mm-hmm. But it's worked in other cities. Any in Texas? Uh, yes, Houston, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Houston. Yeah. I, when I, I talked with you recently, I think it was right after your, your election, you, you mentioned that a big priority for you has been to try to uh, enhance uh, housing affordability oh, in the district because mm-hmm. you, you didn't like the fact that there were people working in the district who were unable to afford living in District 9. Um, how much uh, impact do you think the 2022 housing bond will, will ultimately have on that? How, do you think that they will? Well, I think, it, I think it will, but, you know, it's really not a huge amount of money because it's broken down into different areas. Part of it is to rehabilitate existing housing, mm-hmm. um, predominantly apartments. And, you know, so that isn't going to come into my district very much. Uh, another part of it is for 
permanent supportive housing to build, help build housing where people who have, or are elderly or have disabilities or homeless, that they have a place to go. Uh, that's not maybe as likely to end up being built in my district. However, uh, there are plans to go ahead and help with affordability built into new housing projects. And, mm-hmm. and there are one or two on the map, so to speak, that are being projected uh, as possible uh, uh, developments in my community. And I'm interested in, in watching those and seeing those happen. More importantly, I've had three significant projects that have been built in District 9 since I've been in the council mm-hmm. that are providing real affordability at, at 60% of AMI, some at 80, some even at, at, at 30. Uh, and I'm glad to see that. We had a project that was presented to us, uh, and I sit on the San Antonio Housing Trust Board. Right. And uh, it was going to have some affordable housing, but I didn't think it was enough. And I said, no, I'm not going to support that. Yeah. <laughs> and and we turned around and went back to the developer and renegotiated. We got more affordability built into their project and a greater return to the housing trust over the life of those projects so that we can support more affordability. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely committed to that because we have just we know there are tens of thousands of people struggling to stay where they are. And uh, if you can't and if you have to move, where can you go, especially if you've been evicted? Uh, or if your income is dropped, you know, it, it's a real challenge to house people, whether they're uh, housed now and may become homeless or whether they are homeless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just a strong commitment I have to finding more affordability. And I, I say it to people in my district, people have the right to live near where they work and to live, work and play in the same community. That's that's what I strive for as much as I can. How often do you see the not in my backyard people? I, I see it occasionally. I do. I had a real strong pushback on one project uh, that I was uh, wanting to see. The product project did go through. Okay. Um, but yeah, there there is until you educate people. You know, one of the things I've done is I've taken busloads of people who live in District 9 out on tours. Mm -hmm. And we've gone to the police uh, training and we've gone to the food bank and we've gone to ACS and we've we've gone to Goodwill and we've gone to apartment complexes that were built as affordable apartments for people to see what they're really like. Mm -hmm. And I think once people see something like Prospera, who has a history of building very good affordability uh, units in our city, they see what's built. and, And people that went on that said, yeah, I wouldn't mind having that next to me. Mm-hmm. It's it's fear of the unknown, yeah. Yeah. I think, that really drives that. And I've tried as much as I can to reassure people that uh, I'll do everything I can to maintain or improve the quality of life for people in District 9, not to see it diminished by any kind of new property or development going in. Yeah, the bus tour is really interesting. So what was there a specific project that there were District 9 residents kind of up in arms about that got you thinking about this? No, I I really started thinking about it from the very beginning. I I just felt because I knew there were so many agencies, organizations, departments that the city is involved with. Mm -hmm. And and I heard I did hear one one person say to me one time, "Ah, it's like putting money down a black hole. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like to pay my taxes. I don't know what it goes. And so I decided I'm going to take people around and show them where that money goes, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, supporting training 
or supporting uh, an organization that provides other services that the city can't provide them all. And, and it's been very, very good, very well received. Um, you know, I've never had more than 23 or 24 people go with me on a trip, mm. but there's always people who want to go. And we're going to be doing it again in August. Mm. And I like to do it every quarter. The election kind of interfered. I, did, mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything during the election period. But uh, I, I feel like once a quarter, I like to try and get a group of a couple of dozen people and take them out and show them where their tax dollars are going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about, uh, I think you call it participatory budgeting. Sure. Mm -hmm. Where you uh, you encourage people to, to participate in a survey mm -hmm. and uh, let you know what what their priorities are as far uh, as far as city budgeting and kind of right. help guide you in the process how, how effective has that been well i think it's been really effective we've done it three times uh and this last time what i do is i ask people to tell me how many what project do you see in your community that you think the city should make some improvement in and this last time we got 148 suggestions now, some of those suggestions are unreal. You know, we we look at it and, well, it's going to cost $5 million to do that. We can't do that because mm -hmm. what I've done is identified a million and a half of tax dollars that we can use. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are said, I want you to do this, but it's on private property, like in a gated community that, you know, it's private streets, things like that. We can't do that. Uh, and some of them are very long term and some of them, uh, you know, we're we're simple. Anyway. So we had 148 projects. I brought in uh, a group of citizens who live in a district, asked them, take a look at these. Let's narrow these down on what we really could do, mm -hmm. what, what the money we have will cover. Because uh, we, like, we don't have money to build a building, for example. Uh, so anyway, uh, they narrowed it down to 28. And uh, so what we did was we, we published all the information about these, the location, the estimated cost, pictures, invited people to go out and look at them. And then we invited people to vote. It wasn't just a survey. We said, we want your vote. You mm -hmm. vote on these mm -hmm. one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. What are your top three priorities? Gotcha. Uh, and we narrowed it down to uh, 10. That's And they selected 10 out of those 28. And we're funding them. I was talking to Public Works Department just last week about three of those projects, how we're going to fund them, when they're going to start. Uh, and we've done this twice before. We've had probably 25 other projects that we've, we've completed. Uh, everything from buying bicycles for the bike patrol at North, State, uh, North uh, Substation to putting in a turn lane on a major road that needed to be done. And, and a lot of things in between, putting in restrooms at parks or a watering trough at a park for deer, you know, that we've tried to go ahead and, you know, meet what the people said they wanted and we gave them the vote to do it. Now, my, my uh, last opponent said, well, you only had 2,600 people who voted. Well, that's okay with me. <laughs> we put it out there yeah. uh, on social media. We mailed to people if... If 2,600 people want to say, I'm going to vote, mm -hmm. that's great. I'd love to see 26,000, but mm -hmm. I, I feel good about it. I, I hope to do it one more time in the next fiscal year, uh, but I wouldn't do it beyond that because I wouldn't be around long enough mm -hmm. to make sure those things can go through. Uh, everything that we voted on this year is coming out of this current fiscal budget, which is 22-23. And whatever we choose next time will come out of the 23-24 fiscal budget. And by 25, I'm out of here. 
Well, I noticed when Rosie Castro was appointed uh, two or three months ago, I think you had been talking about uh, your budgeting approach that, that day at, at council. And she was saying, well, this sounds really good. I, I, you know, I'd like to do something like that, too. I wish other council members would, would do it. But yeah. 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 they know what I do. Well, uh, Councilman Courage, uh, thank you again for, for joining us and congratulations on your reelection. And we really appreciate you. Thank you. The podcast. And um, we have two city council runoffs uh, uh, that are, we're currently uh, people are voting on and the election day is on Saturday. If you live in District 1 or District 7, please get out and vote. And uh, next week we'll be back with a recap of, of the results in those races. Until then, take care and uh, hope everyone's doing well. Thank you.